The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, Episode 98. In Russia, beer was not considered an alcoholic beverage until 2013. Hey, welcome to the 21st century, guys. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is someone who I told you I promised that I'd bring him back on after his awesome episode on episode 83, and we're actually bringing him on for a second episode now. We talked our top 20 travel books in the last episode. We gave you numbers 20 through 14, I believe. No, was it 20? Yeah, there we go. 20 20, through 13. 20 through 13, (laughs) excuse me. And today we're going to give you 13 through one. That's my good buddy, Nick Hirsch, my best friend basically since fourth grade. So Nick, thanks for coming on again. Thanks, Trav. It's always a pleasure to be here and talk with you. Yeah, and guys, if, if you are listening and you didn't listen to yesterday's show, we, we went through, as we mentioned, each of us gave four of our top 10 travel books, so eight in total. Uh, we talked a lot of honorable mentions in there. We, we basically threw out any book that we liked in the honorable mentions and said, eh, it didn't make my list, but you should go read it. And we linked all those up in the show notes. You can get that extrapackofpeanuts.com slash travelbooks1. And then today, what we're going to do is we're going to count down from our number six to number one. So number 12 down to number one, and that'll be linked. I'm guessing you can guess what this is, extrapackofpeanuts.com slash travel books and the number two. So that'll be the show notes for this. We'll have that all linked up. And Nick, at the beginning of yesterday's show, or, or kind of in the middle of yesterday's show, I told everyone my number 10 book, and we didn't talk much about it because it actually was on your list. So we we don't talk about these lists beforehand. We have no idea what the other person's going to mention, which makes it more fun. So this was my number 10, and this is your number six. So why don't we just get right into your number six, and we'll discuss this book, because I called it my the most boring book on my list, but it's still <laughs> on my list, and it's on your list. I resent that. <laughs> All right. So go ahead. What What is it? And, let, and let's kind of get into it. So uh, the book is The Tiger, and you know, in, in true New Yorker style, it is The Tiger, colon, A True Story of Vengeance and Survival by John Valiant. I love this book. I agree it's a bit slow, but it's one of the best sort of mixes of almost like murder mystery and travel. You know, it, it has this such a weird, evocative sense of the Russian Far East. I just, I absolutely loved it. It's a guy, a writer from New York, New Jersey, travels to the Russian Far East, to Primoria, that huge area above Vladivostok, northeast of China. Um, That's one of the only places left with Amur tigers, you know, the sort of famous Siberian tiger. And I think there's maybe like 300 left in the wild. Yeah, something like that. Very, very small amount. Very small amount. But the picture he paints of these tigers is just fantastic. I mean, they're basically, you know, like the greatest killing creatures of all time, it sounds right. like. And um, basically these these cats that are the size of three NFL linebackers with like six-inch claws, 
that somehow move through the forest without anyone seeing them that like learn and are incredibly brilliant. And basically he follows the story of one tiger in particular that sort of terrorized this village out in the middle of nowhere. And it's interesting because the Russians who live in this village feel like this almost kinship with the tiger. I mean, it's their lifestyle is very subsistence based almost. I mean, they're, they're hunters, they're trappers, they're farmers in the summer. So they're sort of getting by in the same way that the tigers are. And I think they'd always had this sort of uneasy relationship with the tigers where they just sort of ignored each other. And then this one tiger just goes off the reservation basically and starts killing humans. So he tells the story of working with the people in this village as well as sort of Russian government officials, which is possibly my favorite category of any character. I, I mean, was going to say. A Russian bureaucrat with a gun <laughs> in the middle of nowhere is just awesome. Um, so he just, he joins in the manhunt or I guess the tiger hunt simultaneously this awesome picture of the Russian Far East and this village in the middle of nowhere, as well as this, you know, sort of biological view of these tigers that are just absolutely incredibly impressive. Yeah, I remember reading the book and, and you had recommended it and said like, this is a great book, you should you should check it out. And I did and I loved it and it really gripped me. But it was it was one of those books that took me a very long time to get through because I, I, I read it and I'd become really enthralled by it. And I'd love when they were talking about the people and the town and, and, you know, they're talking about how much snow they get, you know, and it's just these crazy amounts. But then, you know, they, he'd dive deep into kind of like the ecological stuff of the, of the area or the biological stuff of the tiger, which at first was interesting, but he really dives into it in kind of a scholarly way. And so I'd get to those kind of parts and I'd be like, Oh boy, now I got like 60 pages of him discussing like the tundra. <laughs> and it's not super boring. I shouldn't say it's really that boring because I loved it. You know, I wanted to get back to the story. Like, are they going to find this tiger? Is this tiger going to kill more people? This and that. And so you have the story interwoven with all this, like, like I mentioned, kind of scholarly material. You can't sit down and just rip through it. Like it, it takes a while to get through. And I remember I gave it to my dad because I liked it that much. I'm like, hey, you should really read this book. And he doesn't really like reading nonfiction that much. And he's like, oh, I'll give it a try. And he said the same thing to me. He was like, man, that took me like five months to get through because I'd start reading it. I'd like it. And then I'd get really bored at parts. And then I'd have to pick it up later. So it, it's kind of funny that way, right? It, it's not an easy read, but it's really interesting. I mean, it's not like any other book on my list. That's for sure. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It's it's a bit of an outlier in a lot of ways. But I guess the tigers get talked about a fair amount. But that part of Russia and sort of the weird relationship between the people and the tigers, I found really interesting. Yeah, I definitely liked the part when they're telling about the, how the people lived. I mean, it, it it really is a bare bone subsistence living, like they're living in an area that gets tons and tons of snow. I mean, it gets brutally cold and you just think, why are people living here? So he does. He talks to some of the people who live there and discusses why they live there. And, you know, for us, it seems crazy. Like, why would anyone want to live there? But they talk about why they're there. And he talks to some of, I forget the name of, but the native people, right, from that area and how they've lived there for hundreds of years. And it really is a fascinating place that doesn't ever really get written about. Yeah. And actually on that, my, my brother, maybe like a year ago, recommended this movie to me. You know, Werner Herzog, who did a Grizzly Man, the movie about the guy obsessed with the bears who got attacked and killed in Alaska. Right, right. Um, yep. He made this movie called The Happy People about this small village out in the middle of nowhere in the taiga, you know, sort of in the same area of Russia. The movie was a great sort of counterpoint to the book. It doesn't talk about tigers or anything like that, but it is just fascinating to see how these people live. 
And I mean, these are like the ultimate woodsmen of all time. And uh, I mean, we watched a guy take a hatchet to a tree and make himself a pair of skis and then use those skis all winter. I mean, in like an hour, he made himself a pair of skis that he then used to transport himself through all the snow to like his multiple hunting lodges in the middle of the wilderness. It was just really cool. And it's cool to actually see that because so much of what you hear about the Russian Far East is, you know, just in writing. And it's cool to actually get a chance to see a movie and, you know, visualize it as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'll have to I'll have to check out that movie because it is once you read the book, you think, oh my gosh, these type of people, they really exist. Like, yeah, these, like exactly. you said, ultimate woodsmen's, right? Yeah. Not not like, oh, I, I have a farm or I have a cabin in the woods. Like everything they do revolves around them staying alive in the harshest conditions. So that's pretty cool. My number six, speaking of like staying alive and, and harsh conditions, kind of rolls right into it. It's it's the Expedition series. So it's a series of three books and two of them have been written already. And they're by a guy named Jason Lewis, who was one of the first guests on this podcast. And actually, one of the reasons I started the podcast, because way back when I first heard his story, I thought, this guy is doing something incredible. I I would love to be able to tell his story. And I always had the idea of, okay, if I ever have an outlet to do that, I want him on as a guest. And and so it really kind of made me think, all right, I want to start a podcast. And so I think he was the second guest to come on. Jason, he's a, he's a British explorer. And I first heard about him in Long Way Down, which we talked about in last episode, but it's Charlie Borman and Ewan McGregor, and they take a motorcycle from the top of Scotland down to the bottom of Africa. And if you remember, I don't know if you remember this part, Nick, but they meet a guy biking through the Sahara Desert. So yeah, they're on motorcycles, all right? Yeah. And they meet this guy on a bike. And I remember rewinding this a few times with our buddy Frank when we were watching a show. And they, they talk to this guy. It's only like a minute in this show. And they say, can you believe that that guy is circumnavigating the globe using only human power? And I thought, Okay, like I obviously heard that wrong. Like, what do they really mean? <laughs> so we rewound it like three times, and I thought, I have to find out more about this. Like, this can't be true. And I looked him up, and sure enough, he, he set a record. It was 12 years in the making, but what he did is he went all the way around the globe using only human power. So that means, you know, biking through the Sahara Desert. Um, he made a, a special boat that he would pedal across the Atlantic, across the Pacific. He was the first person to rollerblade across the United, all the way across the United <laughs> States. And before he rollerbladed, he had never put on a pair of rollerblades. You know, he kayaked, you know, all through like Indonesia and, and around Australia and stuff like that. So this crazy story, 12 years in the making, and he finished it and he sat down to write these books. And he was actually telling the story of originally they wanted him to write this book and it was a major publishing company and they were going to make a huge blockbuster movie about it. And they wrote, he wrote the first part and the ghostwriter came in and changed it all around. And he basically said he left a lot of money on the table because it didn't do it justice. Like they didn't tell the story that he wanted to tell. So these two books that have been out, one is the first one's called Dark Waters and it's, you know, the first third of his journey. And the next one is that that came out in 2012. And then 2014, The Seed Buried Deep is the second part. And it tells the second half of his journey or the second third of his journey. That's that's awesome. Yeah, he gets very uh, kind of philosophical at times. And, and I am assuming he didn't say this, but those are like the parts that were probably cut out when they were trying to make this, you know, blockbuster book, blockbuster movie. I would assume they just wanted the kind of adventure part of it. And there's parts that he, he gets philosophical and it's kind of I don't want to say strange. It's it's interesting, and then, but of course, he's telling the whole story around it. So it's just it's a fascinating story overall, and the books are, the books are really neat. If you get a chance, that's awesome. Yeah, pick it up, and a really cool dude. And um, 
I think the third one's going to come out in 2016, so in another two years. But you can pick up the first two, and uh, it is a crazy story. I mean, 12 years where he did... No, I can only imagine. <laughs> 12 years, man. 12 years to do something like for uh, no reason other than just to do it. And one of the parts, I won't ruin it, but the, his biggest obstacle actually comes in the United States when he gets hit by a car and he tells that whole story. And um, so definitely not an easy journey, but one that um, he does justice in his books. They're, they're really good books and they're fun to read for sure. Cool. Well, can, can I ask where, what, where does he live now? So now he lives, he splits his time between London and actually Colorado. And it's interesting because Colorado was where he got hit by the car. And so that's kind of then led him to a life. Uh, he had to stay there for quite a long time and um, met people there and kind of, you know, felt like home, he said, after it was the first place he had been for any length of time in, you know, 10 years or however long it had been. So, um, a uh, really cool guy, great stuff that he's doing. He, he now gives talks and, and he does a lot of nonprofit stuff because a lot of the push was, you know, obviously for the environment and how we can travel in different ways than people think we can travel and all. So that's me stumping for Jason, a good dude, um, a good friend. We've spent a lot of time talking and chatting now and um, just some really good books for sure. Awesome. So my number five, um, sort of dovetails with my number six. I think I have this weird fascination with with Russia, probably because I've never been there. So I, I keep reading about it a lot. I know. I'm wondering when you go there, if it's good, just going to be a letdown for you. Probably not. It's Russia, right? I mean, I, I, certainly these days, I'd, I'd only go for work. And I think it would only be more interesting because I'd be going for work. This book, number five, it's by another New Yorker writer who also has written a bit for uh, Outside Magazine as well, which, you know, I guess in the in the 90s and the early 2000s, I think was one of the best magazines ever written. I mean, there's some awesome travel articles, really interesting adventure stuff, uh, Outside Magazine, back editions. I can't recommend them enough. The, the writer is Ian Frazier, and this is uh, Travels in Siberia, which actually just came out a couple years ago. Um, I think it was 2010. And it's sort of a series of essays that recounts all of his trips to Russia from like the 80s up until the present. And um, a, a few of the trips that he does are just shorter trips where he just goes to Moscow or St. Petersburg. But a few of the trips, I mean, he'll fly into St. Petersburg and he and one or two Russian guys will get in a van and drive across Russia and he'll fly back from you know Vladivostok or even further east. So basically, he's driven across Russia a few times, which I can only imagine the hardship there. <laughs> I know. Just, just the idea that he's done it once and then done it again yeah, and again. Exactly. And again, you know, he paints these hilarious pictures of the, his Russian traveling companions, who it's the same guys every time. And they're, they're friends, but they're not. I mean, there's, there's this weird antagonism between them the whole time, which really makes it more interesting. So for what he's seeing and for what he's doing... It's really cool. I mean, at one point he goes to Siberia in the winter for like a month or two. And I don't think he drove there then. He flies in. It's just fascinating to see what he sees. I mean, I think Russian people in general are just some of like the warmest, nicest, most interesting people. And I think Americans don't necessarily see that or think of it very often. Well, I think we have the idea in our head, right? I mean, it's that Cold War Russia idea without ever really even knowing Russian people themselves. Right. I think in that sense, the book is fantastic because it really paints an awesome picture of Russia. On the other hand, he's, he's very human as a traveler, I think. Like there's a, there are flaws to his method. I think with so much of travel writing, 
the people who are writing these books are like very hard headed, very determined, you know, they do the craziest stuff because I, I mean, to be honest, that's the only way you're really going to get published. And for him, it's a much more sort of cerebral trip. There are a couple times where he wants to do things and his tour guide says no, and he does, doesn't push him. So they end up not doing some things. Um, it's, it's an odd read for a travel book because he's not constantly pushing the envelope, you know, it's very, I mean, I'm saying that about a guy who drove across Russia in a van. So obviously he's pushing some envelopes, but he, he really takes a back seat sometimes, which is just interesting. I mean, I'd never really read a travel book where the person isn't going a hundred percent the entire time, you know? Right, where it's not these story, like constant stories of cheating death, and you know, like like kind of like I mentioned with the expedition series, you know, it's this crazy story where he's constantly doing things. That that's neat that he he kind of takes it as it comes, and a lot of times will say, okay, well, we're not going to do that. I, when you were talking about Outside Magazine, I had one on my written list, like on my pen and paper list. Really? And I forgot to transport over to my list on the computer. So now it's not on my top 10. So I have to put it, I guess it, I guess it can fit in here. And it, it would actually probably be maybe two, maybe three. Um, so I'll throw it in now as my 5B. Let's, let's put it in here. 5B. But that is, yeah. And this guy is an awesome writer, as you mentioned a writer for Outside Magazine, wrote some fantastic pieces. I think he might still write for Outside Magazine. Uh, a big travel name, John Krakauer and, oh, yeah. and Into the Wild, which, again, a lot of people have probably seen the movie. It, w- it was a very well-done movie. but I And I think the movie does do the book some justice, where sometimes you can say, oh, that movie doesn't do it justice. The movie's good. The book is is much better. Krakauer is a fantastic writer. And Again, not. A, I mean, it is a travel book, I guess. Oh, very much. Chris McCandless's personal journey and his travel around the world, and it just—I love that book. It's one of the few books, and I'm going to mention this when I get to my number one. Actually, it's one, but because it, I don't usually read books a second time, and that's how I know if if they're good. If I if I read them again, and um, Into the Wild, I think I've read twice or three times, and you know, I know what's going to happen, obviously. And he says it in the first paragraph, like the, the Chris McCandless dies, but you already know what happens, but it's, it's the whole story around it. Into the wild is definitely on my list, even though I forgot to bring it over to my digital list. Ah, I loved that book and I still do. And I love John Krakauer. I mean, even under the banner of heaven, the one about fundamentalist Mormons in Utah. I mean, he's just such an awesome writer. The problem with Into the Wild for me was that the movie actually kind of ruined it. And I liked the movie, but the movie really lionized this kid. Look at what he's willing to go through on a journey of self-discovery. I mean, he's willing to die. The book is a much more holistic picture of Chris McCandless. And it's, and it's really like, you know, this kid, while being idealistic and, and really wanting to follow his passion, was also just a naive kid. And he died for the dumbest reason. Yeah, he was like, what, mid-20s or even early 20s? He was like 23, yeah. Yeah, so I think you're right. I I do think the movie puts it up on a pedestal of like, romanticizes it as as we've talked about and kind of makes it seem like, wow, he's done an amazing thing when in reality, he's done a very stupid thing. Now, you know, we can argue the merits of, you know, whether it's worth it for him and who knows, only he knows that. But yeah, I think the book, you're right, paints it in a much more fair way, much more even keeled way than the movie. 
And I do think, and you know, if you go into forums, you can fall down the rabbit hole of people debating this endlessly of like, was it, you know, cause it is such a big book and people know, but was it worth it or, or should we romanticize this notion or is it stupid? I, I do agree. I think the movie's good. I think if you haven't watched either, or even if you've watched a movie and not read the book, definitely read the book. It, it gives you more insight. Did you read Into Thin Air? I did. That's the first John Krakauer I read. Um, because I was such a huge thing. What was it? 98 when those people died on Everest. Right. Um, right. And I mean, it was just sort of this random happenstance that like the best climbing writer, certainly, but also one of the best travel and adventure writers would actually be on site for the worst mountaineering disaster, you know, the last 20 years. So no, I found that really fascinating. Yeah. Heather really likes Into Thin Air. I actually haven't read it yet. I don't know why I, I we have it and I just haven't ever got into it, even though I love Krakow. And I do definitely want to read the ones uh, about the Mormons in Utah. And he writes another one, a, a short story that I just recently read. Well, I say recently, it was like two years ago, but it was called Three Cups of Deceit. Um, it's a, it's a yeah, short yeah. story. Um, did you read yeah. that? I I heard about it because, you know, the, the climbing community, I, not that I'm a member of the climbing community, but I heard that the climbing community was sort of outraged by Three Cups of Tea. Um, when that came out. And I know there's a lot of issues with that sort of politically and in a lot of ways that that book and this was sort of the response to that book. Yeah. But yeah, Krakauer, great writer. Uh, So Into the Wild, I I have to put on this list. So there you go. There's an extra one, guys. A freebie. (laughs) My my real number five. And this is funny because I'll, I'll give this kind of an adjective or a little anecdote. This was the book that I disliked the most when I first started reading it. And, but it's now my number five book of uh, travel book. And it's called Blue Highways by William Least Heat Moon. He's descended from a Native American tribe. I can't remember exactly each one, uh, which one. And this would probably be the only quote unquote classic on my list, although it's not a classic in the ways that some of the other ones are, but it has got a lot of publicity. It was written, he took a trip in the late seventies. I think it came out in like the early eighties. And he drove around the back roads in a white van. So he talks about he had just gotten divorced, I believe. And so he had this white van. And I think he called the white van Ghost or Ghost Rider. I can't exactly remember now. But he took this white, basically a, a cargo van. And he just set out on the back roads of America. And I remember, I forget how I found this book. I think it was like a dollar at a, at a yard sale. And I started reading and I thought, kind of like how you're talking about with Thoreau, like, oh, this guy is just... And he, it's not that he was condescending. It's just that I didn't like his writing style. You know, it was kind of too much. It was kind of over the top. I just wanted to hear about his adventure. I didn't want to hear about all the other stuff that had to go into it. Right. I just wanted to know like the people he met. So I started reading. I'm like, Oh, this is this. I don't like this book at all. But I was actually at my grandparents and I had no other books and I had nothing else to do in Florida. So I kept reading it. And he, and you know, then he starts in the beginning, he talks about his travel and why he's doing it. And that's the stuff I wasn't interested in. And then he gets on the road and he starts meeting all these people. And it's just fascinating, the people he he meets. And I originally thought, I thought I knew everything back then. And I, I still probably do, right? But I, it was like I was in my <laughs> early 20s. And it was called Blue Highways. And it, and it says like a journey through America's back roads. And I thought, what is he talking about? Like blue highways? Like blue are the main highways. This guy's an idiot, right? Uh, naturally, I thought this before even opening the book cover. And um, <laughs> and then he goes on to discuss that 
on the older maps back then, the blue highways were the ones that were the back roads. So right away, I'm not giving me any credit. He's much smarter than me, much better writer than me. <laughs> and it, it's long. It might be 400 pages, 350 pages, but he just, he travels all around America meeting these random people like this, this random monk at a monastery or this town like this town that had been been closed, I think it was like in Mississippi, and and he just would find a place on a map and he would go there and he would, and and it, oh, it was called Nameless Tennessee, I think was that was the name of the place. So he goes there and and no one's there, and he and then he sees an old farmer and he asks him about the town, and the guy starts telling him about the town and how it got its name or or lack of a name, I guess, really, and um. It's just cool. It's a great book. I I did not like it at first. And this is one of the few books that I have read. I've probably now read it three different times. So I pick it up here and there. And I it's funny because I start reading the beginning and I instantly am transported back to what I thought when I first read it. I was like, Pam, remember how much of an <laughs> idiot you were? Like you almost put this down after 10 pages because of basically your own pride. H- have you heard of it? Have you read it? I know. I I've, I've never heard of this book. Yeah, I, I'm a sucker for road, you know, kind of these road trip books. You're going to see that coming up in a couple of my other ones. But um, <laughs> I, I definitely recommend reading. I have to give him a lot of credit because it's it was one of the first, I think, of these travel logs, right? Uh, you know, he wrote it in the early 80s. So even though some of it's dated, it's not really. I mean, that stuff still exists in America. So yeah, well, I like the idea of writing sort of, you know, on, on a very specific theme or having that gimmick. But I also like the idea, and this is sort of what we talked about with Paul Thoreau, of just like traveling and writing whatever happens to you during the day. And I like, you know, it's, it's always cool to hear about like the the interesting things that happen. But I'm also really captivated by the mundane things that happen because, you know, as we've talked about before, travel is 90% of it is just mundane, you know, and it is yep. the people who can capture that and make that part of travel interesting are the ones I want to keep reading. Yeah, if you want to read like three paragraphs on how the rain sounds when it's hitting the uh, the roof of a cargo van, then then this book is for you. But like I said in the beginning, I was like, oh, this is awful. And then, but it, you you get into it, and then you're really like, oh, you know what? This is cool. This is pretty. He's painting me a very good picture of it. So, um, Blue Highways by William Least Heat Moons, my number five. What about your number four? So my number four is a series. Um, you knew this was coming. So apologies in advance, but I think so much of, of travel reading is like the dreaming that comes along with it, you know, like imagining yourself there. And that's why a lot of the books, at least for me, are ones that I read as a teenager in my twenties, when it was more about thinking about going places than actually going places and the Tintin series. And I'm not alone here. I know a number of people who love to travel a lot who are obsessed with Tintin. You know, if you're reading that as a seven or eight year old, who's always imagining these other places to read it and then to to see it and to see these really awesome drawings of you know almost every place on earth it's it's really fascinating and that from the time I was a kid up through now I think it's such a fascinating series and I know that there are certainly with the early ones there's a lot of sort of like racial issues stuff like Tintin in the Congo which is the first one it's hardly even mentioned anymore because it was so racist and I think what's interesting in, is that Herge the author you really see him grow as a human through like the 40 years that he wrote this series. And as an adult, I've read more of sort of the background on it and sort of the uh, really in-depth research he did into the places he was writing about or the adventures he was writing about. And I think it's fascinating. I know you might disagree with that, 
I think for a, a kid, Tintin is one of the best sort of forms of travel writing you can imagine. Yeah, I, for whatever reason, I never got into Tintin. I think it was because I just I didn't get into comics. You know, our other good buddy, there was like three of us. He loved Calvin and Hobbes. You loved Tintin. I loved. Um, I don't know, Sports playing Illustrated, yeah, Sports Illustrated <laughs> and, and playing Atari. I think you're right. You were definitely kind of well ahead of the curve. I mean, I was a kid, so I didn't know a ton of people, but I didn't know anyone else who knew about Tintin. And I actually didn't even really know of anyone who knew about Tintin until I became older and started traveling to Europe. And then, of course, you know, people know about Tintin uh, over in Europe. It's, it's much more common than it is in America. And now, of course, people know about it because the movie came out, what, a year or two ago? Um, yeah, a couple years ago. And I didn't actually watch the movie either. What did you think of the movie? Did it do I it? I liked it. Yeah. Um, it. yeah, it was sort of, I think it did the spirit justice. I think, you know, in terms of stories, uh, Spielberg meshed like three or four different stories together. So that part kind of hurt. Yeah. But um, no, I, I think it captured the spirit really well. Yeah, and I I do think you're right though. I you were one of the first people to know, but I think that might have been one of the reasons that you had this idea, this sense of wanderlust before anyone else that I knew really. I, some of that came because you travel a lot with your parents, but I think you were constantly reading those comics and that really that brought it out in you. Whereas for me, I, I wasn't reading them. I was reading a lot about like American biographies like Davy Crockett and things like that. So I had that sense of wanderlust for America, but I didn't really care the global travel like you did. And I'm guessing that was one of the reasons because of Tintin. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And it's funny you mentioned those that series, you know, my mom was librarian. We both had her as our elementary school librarian. And she was the one who had Tintin in the library. So that's how I got into it. But she also had that series of like 150 biographies of Americans. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. in the back room? Yeah, and I was I in the biography books. And like, like the book about like Zeb Pike, for whatever reason, stands out of my mind. I mean, all these like early American adventurers. And it was just like, you know, they're like 150 pages thick, easy to read as a, you know, eight or nine year old. But I love that series. I am with you 100%. I, I believe that they were all, I could be wrong. We'll have to ask your mom to check this for us at some point, although she's not the librarian anymore. But I believe they were all exactly like 192 pages. I yeah. remember there was a certain cutoff number and everyone fit into that amount of pages. And you're right. It was like these crazy American explorers that you wouldn't really find in the history books. I mean, Davy Crockett, I mentioned that's a big one. But yeah, Zeb Pike and just there were, there were sports people. And I, I think that out of the 150 or so she had in the library, I probably we ended up reading 130 of them. Yeah, no, there's there's probably a few that have never been picked up. But yeah, the, the, that series was fantastic. Yeah. So thank you, Nick's mom. Thank you, Mrs. Hirsch, for uh, for instilling Evans. us I, in this. Now, Miss Evans, for instilling us <laughs> that um, that sense of wanderlust a little bit. My number four is a book that is the perfect book for you, bar none, the perfect book for you. It's called The Hidden Europe by Francis Tapon. And Francis has been a guest on this podcast. He is another phenomenal guy, a great writer. What it is, is a, I I like to describe it as like the most awesome history textbook you could have, because what it is, is he goes over a three-year period to all 25 Eastern European countries. Oh, wow. And, and he first goes to, to some of them uh, before that, and then he, he travels back, and he goes to all of them, all 25 in three years, and it's a travelogue mixed with a sense of history, and he talks all about the histories of the countries, and he talks with people, and he intersperses his dialogue, and he's really funny. And so it, it's just a really cool mixture of you know, talking about the Balkan War and, and making it really easy to understand. You know, it's not dry at all. 
but it also doesn't delve too deep to the point that you think, okay, like this is getting over my head or boring. He, he takes something that's very complex. He boils it down very simply. And then he talks about his own experiences. It's, it's an incredible book. And what's so cool about it is each chapter is a different country. So he kind of meshes, you know, he segues in between countries, but really what you can do and what I did the first time is when I was traveling somewhere, I was like, okay, well, we're going to Croatia. I'm going to read about Croatia. Oh, now I might want to go to Bosnia. So while I was in Eastern Europe, it was cool. I was reading about different countries and then we were going and doing the things that he would talk about doing in those countries, like in um, in Montenegro. And I know you, you like Coder Montenegro and that was his one thing to me. He said, if you're going to Eastern Europe, just do me a favor. You have to go to Coder. And me and Heather did. And so like he talked about walking up this path and finding this hidden church. And me and Heather did that. And it was just, it's really cool. So you can kind of follow his footsteps. And if you're even not going, it's just fun to read and learn about the history in a, in a really interesting way. I think you'd love it. Yeah, no, I, I, I've never heard of it. This is, this is great. I have a list of like five books already that I have to read that I've never heard of. Yeah, so the Hidden Europe by by Francis Tapon. That's my number four. Awesome. That's a uh, that's what I'm going to have to check out. Yeah, for sure. What's your number three? So my number three. I guess this is sort of Tintin for adults. I guess when I was maybe twenty, my brother recommended the Aubrey Matron series of novels. Remember that movie Master and Commander that came out the other year? Yeah, maybe maybe like eight or nine years ago. The movie was based on a series of twenty one novels written by Patrick O'Brien. And he started maybe in like the 60s and then uh, wrote these the series up until his death in 2000. So it's 20 novels and then like a 21st one that's sort of uh, that he was writing when he died. So it's, it's incomplete. And it tells the story of a captain during the Napoleonic Wars. He's a British naval sea captain. And his best friend, who's the ship surgeon, but also like an intelligence agent and sort of like a a naturalist, so very much like the early 19th century Renaissance man. And the books themselves are wonderful. It takes a little while to get into them. Uh, he he writes in like a Jane Austen style, so the language is of the time, so it takes a little while to get into that. He throws dozens and dozens and dozens of nautical terms at you without explaining it, so it takes a while to get into that. I mean, it was like two or three books into the series before I actually had a good understanding of what was going on. I cannot recommend this series of novels enough. The characters are so well created. I mean, they're they're flawed, they're realized. I mean, it's it's wonderful. And I've read the series three times now. And the first time you're just kind of going through to sort of try and understand what's going on. I mean, this is years of my life I've dedicated to this. So really, this, this is <laughs> I, I'm, hilariously I hope you like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The second time you read it through and you're like, oh, okay, like now I understand the nautical stuff. So it's cool to see how this works and how like the actual battles are working at sea, that kind of thing. And then the third time you read it and you realize that it's almost a comedy. I mean, you know the characters so well at this point that it's, it's just hilarious. I mean, the, the way they interact, there's a lot of ride jokes thrown in. Um, it's really interesting. And then from a travel perspective, I mean, he sort of has stretched time. So in reality, it's you're reading about from like 1800 until 1815. I mean, it's it's a short window of time. And he stretches that out to maybe like 30 years or so for these two, just so that they can fit all of their adventures in. Um, but they, they go to South America a number of times, as they do in the movie. They're in India. They go to coastal Africa. They're in the Mediterranean constantly. So, you know, they're in Malta and Mallorca and Menorca, like all these random little islands. 
They go to Albania to deal with some of the rulers there, a lot in Southeast Asia. It's just fascinating. Really well-realized characters, fantastically portrayed scenes. Um, and, you know, for sort of dreaming about going places, I can't imagine a better series. So there you go, T- 20 books, and you have to read them three times. So Nick just gave me <laughs> yes. 60 travel books to read. So now we can just stop, right? That's yeah, it? no, that's it. I mean, that's that's <laughs> part of my top 10 right there, 60 books shoehorned <laughs> into number three. Oh, I love I love how you ended up doing that. That's, that's always the best is when you find little caveats to make sure that you get everything you want to mention in. Now, that sounds really great. What made you decide to keep reading it? You know, you said it took you two or three books to really get into it. Why'd you keep going? I mean, there's probably like six layers to these books, and I'm obviously probably only like halfway through. But the first layer is just as interesting. I mean, it's it, if nothing else, you really like these characters, and you really do understand what's going on during these naval battles. For like a sense of adventure and like a swashbucklingness on the base level, you you always get that. And then over time, you you like the characters more, you like the humor more, so things start to jump out. But you could read them once and, and still find them fantastic. I tend to reread things a lot more than you do too. So I think that... Yeah, uh, well, hey, yeah. they must be good if you reread all 20 and it and it's three times. And now to get to the six layers, you, ha- you have three more times to go I for know. each book. I so. don't know if I have enough time left in my life, but... Yeah. <laughs> my number three is a book, again, uh, a recent book that I just read, another guest on the podcast. So what I've been able to do is like, if I like something, I ask someone to come on the podcast, which selfishly is really, really awesome. It's um, cool that works. Yeah, exactly. And what's so cool about this book, it's called The Road Headed West by Leon McCarran. And Leon is a British adventurer. He's younger than us. So kind of puts us to shame a little bit here because we're just talking about reading about adventures. But I think he's about 25, 26, might be a touch older now. So Leon, if you're listening, I'm doing you a favor here, knocking you back a little bit. But it's the first book he's written. And it's about a road trip or excuse me, a bike trip that he took across the US. And since then, he's done some other crazy adventures. Like he pulled a sled through the desert called The Empty Quarter, and they made a movie about that. But this was what's interesting about this is this is just a bike trip across the US. So fairly mellow for an adventurer, right? And and for right. someone who's done a lot of his the stuff that he's done. But it was the first trip he took. And he talks about just, you know, that kind of coming of age, not sure of what he wanted to do, had no idea after graduating university, what what job you want or anything like that. And he thought, I'm just going to go to America with the money that I have. I'm going to have a bike and I'm going to start biking. And that is exactly what he did. And it's really, really well written, especially for someone who, you know, he's an adventurer. And as he said, he likes writing, but he's not, he's not an author who's written a bunch of books or anything like that. It was, I was blown away by how good the writing in it was, because normally you read one of those types of books and you think, all right, this is a great story. But, it, you know, it, you're there for the story. And um, I, I definitely enjoyed the story that he told in his personal journey. But the writing itself was very well done, very descriptive. You kind of got a, a real good sense of being on the trip with him and what he was going through. So I can't recommend it enough. It's an easy read. It's a quick read because you, it's hard to put down because you kind of want to know what happens next and all. And again, it's not a crazy adventure like you mentioned, right? Not a crazy adventure. It's just a, something that anyone can do, something that your brother's done and my uncles have done, you know, biked across the US, but he tells it in a way that's, that's very genuine and very true. So um, The Road Headed West. That's, by, that's awesome. Yeah, and but, I like that. I, I like taking an adventure that you can do, but then writing about it and thinking about it in a way that you never could, you know? And I think that's part of the allure is like, I could do this. Like I could be on the road and be doing the same thing and going through the same thing that he's 
going through. And that's part of the draw for me when I was reading was thinking, man, maybe I will put myself in that position, you know, and I've talked on the podcast about Elliptic going across the US and how I'm going to do that. And this was one of the things that made me think, hey, you know, I need to have a journey like that. I need to have the experiences that he had, not just the outward experiences, but the inward experiences. So yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good book. Thinking about it too. Yeah. The Road Headed West by Leon McCarran, another podcast guest. I'm just loving. I, I could show, shower them with love, man, because I, I've read them and I, and I like the books. So, all right, we're getting to the nitty gritty here. And, and this list, I, I will mention, I think it was probably hard for you too, Nick, to actually put in order because I really do like all of these books. So it becomes hard to say what's one, what's two, what's three, what's four, but we, we've tried our best. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you asked me tomorrow, it would be a totally, not only would it be a different list probably, but it would certainly be in a different order as well. And this is one that I actually forgot about until we were doing the first podcast on this. And then it suddenly popped into my mind and there's no way that I could not have this on there. This is, I think this is probably the most classic travel or adventure book on my list, but Kantiki by Thor Heyerdahl. Have you heard of this or read this at all? I've seen it somewhere, like the, but I have not read it and I don't know anything about it. So enlighten us. So he's, um, he was a, uh, initially at least an anthropologist. Um, he was living in, I think in Tahiti or somewhere in French Polynesia. And um, he noticed that a lot of their, their culture, both in like the gods they worshipped, the, the paintings that they had, even like the potatoes that they were eating, seemed very similar to uh, South American culture. And he came up with this theory, which has since been disproven, but that doesn't take away from the adventure. <laughs> he came up with this theory that uh, South American explorers had sailed across the Pacific to Tahiti and that general area, you know, the South Pacific, and colonized and the islands there and, you know, transferred their culture. So in like 1949, he, he was Norwegian he and four other Norwegians and a Swede built a big balsa raft in Peru. So like, you know, those massive balsa logs that are like five feet in diameter and, right. um, and balsa is, you know, really light. So they made this raft and sailed it across the Pacific at a time when it's not like, you know, if the, if the raft had gone down, they would have died. I mean, there's nothing, there's no reason that they should have gotten on this raft. It was just stupid. I mean, I, when you actually think about it, like, they were no one had even proven that these rafts, which didn't exist anymore, but like that was in the historical record. So no one had ever proven that these rafts could actually handle the open ocean. And these guys are Norwegian. They're not even like Peruvian. I mean, they have no idea what they're doing. So they build this raft themselves in port in Peru and just set out. And I think it took three months. They had like a, a radio, like a radio transceiver. But it wasn't one that they could, you know, easily call out and ask for help with. I mean, they were just talking to like radio operators in California, just updating them on the news and that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, they sailed across the Pacific, made it to an island. They made a movie at the time that won an Oscar. So they, they recorded it on video while they were sailing. And then recently, I think uh, a Norwegian company remade the movie themselves. It's just absolutely fascinating. Yeah, those are the types of books I love. I mean, just these crazy adventures. When did you say that they, they set off on this adventure? What year? It was like 1949 or 1950. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, so I mean, we're talking, yeah, you're out there alone with no support, uh, nothing. Yeah. And I, I, the problem is that I think he enjoyed it so much that he tried to do other adventures. 
And instead of just doing these adventures, he tried to justify them with science. So he built like an Egyptian reed raft and then tried to sail it from North Africa to South America. He did some really kind of weird stuff then. But I mean, adventure-wise, it's fantastic. Right. So he just got caught up in, in the adventure. But the first one, the, the Kentucky, yeah, that, that's incredible. And now he has a, a group of tours named after him that are for 20, 21 yes, to 35-year-olds. Yes. So. And in, um, in Oslo, I didn't realize this when I went, but in Oslo, they have a Kentucky museum that has the, the real raft and sort of you know chronicles the journey. Um, so next time you're in Oslo, check it out. It's really cool. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, cool book. That I will yeah. pick that up. That That is piquing my interest big time now. There you go. My number two, going back to this idea of road trips across America. So now in my top five, I, I have... <laughs> you have a theme I here. I have a theme. It's called the Magic Bus, Magic M-A-J-I-C, so without a G, with a J, by David Brinkley. And David Brinkley was a professor at Hofstra. And what he did was, you know, he was an, an English professor, I, I think, maybe maybe a social sciences professor. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to take a group of people, uh, students, on this trip around America. So it was during the, excuse me, not David Brinkley, Douglas Brinkley, I'm sorry. He wanted to take, that's why he's never answered my call to come on the podcast. I probably <laughs> yes, referred to him exactly. as David. When I, Wrong yeah, email address. Um, he he took a group of students in the early 1990s from Hofstra on a summer semester and they got a they got a bus and they turned it into a, like a sleeper bus i think there was you know 12 or 13 of them something like that and what they did was they read a lot of the beat generation authors so Ginsburg and Kerouac and people like that and and so they had a you know a pretty rigorous uh, syllabus in terms of the stuff that they had to do, right? They had to read these books and they talk about and all. But as they were doing this, they were traveling all over the country and he was setting up, and obviously he had some connections with people and and he was setting up all these neat things for them to do all around the country and outside of just like, hey, going to the Grand Canyon, all that cool stuff. But they were meeting some of the people who had written some of these books and things like that. So just a really, I remember being, I might have been right out of college when I read that. And I just thought, this is so awesome. And it's funny because I think their first night, they're in Washington, D.C., so they're just starting. And he actually gets robbed, like the professor, D- Douglas Brinkley, <laughs> gets robbed outside of, you know, in like Georgetown or something like that. So it's, it, cu- it gets off to a little bit of an auspicious start. It's just a really neat story. He writes in a, in a really interesting way. And it's just cool. It, it's cool to put yourself in that mindset and think, man, how cool would this have been to be a 18, 20 year old and, and be taking this trip and getting to see all this stuff. And that's kind of before I actually read a lot of travel writing. So it was before I read Kerouac or anything like that. And so I didn't even really know half of the stuff that they were talking about. Like they were talking about these books and I thought, well, I don't even know what that book is. I, I was pretty naive to the world of of travel writing back when I was in college. And so I picked up a few of the books that they were reading and I read them kind of right after I read The Magic Bus and stuff like that. But just a just a really cool book. And um, yeah, it would, be, it would be something that I would have loved to do when I was in university. And even if you're out, obviously, you can pick it up and, and kind of experience it. But um, yeah, another really neat travel log. Very cool. And, until this book like is really hard to find. I just found it at a bookstore and I, you know, you can find it on Amazon. I'll link to it. But uh when you type in Magic Bus even with a J it always comes up to the Magic School Bus comics. Uh, you know, the little kids. <laughs> 
that's that's the problem with uh, mirroring such a famous series of books. It's it's hard to you know distance yourself. Yeah. So I I, I highly recommend it. I I'm, I want to read it again. I have started reading a second time and then didn't finish it the second. But now that I'm older, you know, 31, I've been out of college for whatever 11 years. Um, I'd like to read it again and see if it still holds the same draw to me. I, I think it will. So the Magic Bus by by Douglas Brinkley is my number two. Awesome. That sounds like a cool one. I like books based on books too. You know, right, right. It is. It's cool because they talk about the literature and they talk about the music that, you know, they play different music as they're going through different states. And so it's just this cool, really getting a real sense of America, American pop culture, as well as the history, as well as the literature, all kind of while doing the trip. So it, it ties all that together in a neat way. Very cool. I'll have to check that out. All right. Here we um, go. Drum roll. Your number oh, one, Nick. Number your number one. one travel book. I, I I wonder if I've mentioned this one to you over the years because I probably read this for the first time maybe like 15 years ago or so. As you have your American road trip theme, I apparently have my Russia theme. This one is called Eastern Approaches by Fitzroy McLean, who was a, a Scottish guy um, born in, you know, around World War One, who um, started out as a British diplomat in Paris in the 1930s. Basically, the book is all about his life up through the end of World War II. And I think he wrote a couple of things after that and then became a member of parliament in the UK and wrote a lot about Scotland and that sort of thing. But this is sort of a memoir of, you know, the first 30 years of his life. And it starts with him as a diplomat in Paris in the 30s. He finds it very boring, you know, nice, but boring. So he asks for a transfer to Moscow and gets transferred to Moscow. He's there in the 30s, sort of at the height of the Stalinist purges. So politically, it's really cool to see. And he was actually the person from the British embassy in the courtroom during these trials. So these were the trials where Stalin got rid of basically his best friends because they were getting to be a little too powerful. Um, So he had these sort of trumped up charges and these kangaroo courts that uh, ended up, you know, convicting everybody. And then everyone would just be let out back and shot. Um, so he's there for this, and he sort of paints it with a very realistic picture, I guess you could say. And at the same time, he's this nonstop adventurer. So he's constantly just getting on trains and going to like Central Asia or down into the Caucasus. He's followed everywhere by the NKBD, so like the predecessor to the KGB. I think he's probably like one of the first modern Western authors to visit, you know, Uzbekistan and, and like he talks about eating apples there. I mean, it's, it is sort of the mundane stuff. It's a travel log of what he's doing. None of it's glamorous. It's all these like absolute crap holes in Central Asia that he goes to. Um, but it's, it's fascinating. Is this the book that you mentioned to me? I remember you giving me one to read and it was talking about Baku, Azerbaijan. Is this the one? No. So that one, I was going to mention that earlier. I think... I don't, Baku doesn't stand out much from Eastern Approaches. There is one called The Orientalist. Yes, um, and that's that, the one. That yeah. was what started as a New Yorker article by Tom Rice about the guy who wrote one of the most popular books in Nazi Germany, even though he was a Russian emigrate Jew. And he wrote this book, Ali and Nino, that's like the national book of Armenia and also of Azerbaijan. It's sort of like a Romeo and Juliet story of the Caucasus. But yeah, so the Orientalist is is the biography of him. It's that's fascinating. Gotcha. Yeah, because I actually started reading that and then thought ah, this isn't really up my alley. But yeah. <laughs> that's, Eastern that's approach, more <laughs> Eastern approaches, I haven't read at all. So yeah, and so that it's like three parts. So the first part is him traveling through Central Asia and living in Moscow. 
The second part is him volunteering for like the British Special Forces in North Africa during World War II. And it's his adventures there doing all this like guerrilla warfare in Libya and Egypt um, against the, the Germans, which was pretty cool. And um, that's the part that always stands out least to me. And then the third part, which is the part of the book that I find the most fascinating by far, is um, he's picked by Churchill to, to parachute into Yugoslavia and be like the British liaison to Tito's partisan forces. And Tito ended up being the, the dictator of Yugoslavia, you know, through the 80s. He was the personality that basically held Yugoslavia together as a country until his death. And so it's this portrait of Tito as like a guerrilla fighter in the mountains of, of Yugoslavia. So mostly Bosnia and Croatia. And that was the first book I'd ever read about Croatia, basically. And, you know, McLean goes back and forth to like all of the islands. Um, he's living off the land with these rebel fighters. And it progresses through until the end of the war where Tito's group meets up with the Red Army in Belgrade at the end of the war. And that's sort of the beginning of Yugoslavia. But for history, it's fascinating just to have an inside view of the Stalinist trials and right. Central Asia at the time and Tito and all that. But as a travel book, my God, he does some of the coolest things. That's awesome. So what was it called? Eastern Approaches. Eastern Approaches by Fitzroy McLean. All right. Very cool. Yeah. I, I mean, it's your number one book. I have to give it a shot now. Uh, now you I've do. got a, a bunch that I have to, to read. My number one, you may have read. It's another movie. And I know this is my favorite book. It, it's not exactly a travel book because I've read it. I'll pick it up like every other year, if not. So I've probably read it four or five different times. And it's Catch Me If You Can. So have you read the book? No, I, I didn't. I don't. I guess it, the book was written by the guy himself, right? Yeah, it was it's written by like autobiography, right? It was written by Frank Abagnale, the same guy, uh, you know, portrayed in the movie. I assume you've seen the movie. Oh, yeah, I love the movie. Yeah. So the movie is great. And, and it again, it does the book some justice. But I, you know, the book obviously just goes into more detail and has more stuff with it. It's a fascinating book. I, I absolutely love it. I, I again, I picked it up like three or f I, I've read it now cover to cover at least four times. I know most people listening have probably seen the movie. So if you've seen the movie, you have an idea of what it's about. But, you know, just it's just a cool, true story of a guy who cons a lot of people out of a lot of things. And, you know, I think all of us look at that and say, like, wouldn't that be such a cool lifestyle? Now, really, it's romanticized and it's probably not as great as he made it out to be or or it was and he is a thief uh, overall um but yeah just a just an awesome book and and a good movie so if anyone hasn't seen the movie i recommend that but read the book first um catch me if you can by by frank abagnale cool. is it pretty close to the movie itself or does it sort of yeah, stray a little bit or is it more in depth it, it's just more in depth i've seen the movie i haven't seen the movie recently so I, I, I've never read the book and then watched the movie right away or anything like that. But it is I do remember watching the movie and thinking, okay, this is this is a pretty close reproduction of, of the actual book. But of course, with the book, you just have more details and stuff like that. So yeah, my number awesome. one quote-unquote travel book. I am actually, yeah. I'm, I'm surprised <laughs> you didn't mention one. I'll, I'll throw one more out there for people. Okay. Everyone, I, I'm surprised you didn't mention Shibumi, which is a novel and not, I guess yeah. not really a travel book, but. It is. I'd throw that in with the Clive Cussler ones too. I like that book a lot, actually, and I reread it the other year. I actually realized I had like three copies of that book, and I, I love it. I mean, it's by Trevanian, so you know, it's it's a pen name for another famous author, and I don't know if they ever actually figured out who it was. 
who wrote I also the Iger Sanction, which is one of my favorite books and was in a Clint Eastwood movie in the 70s. But yeah, it's sort of, you know, this the very romanticized 70s image of like a, a hitman working for an international cartel who, who I guess in Shibumi, he, he like knows how to kill people with rolled up magazines and credit cards and all that kind of crap. <laughs> But it's fascinating, and he's like a world-class spelunker and all this. I mean, it's just like the most random stuff. But I love that book. Um, really fascinating. Well, yeah, there, there you guys have it. I mean, our favorite travel books. This episode was 12 down to 1. Yesterday, uh, this past episode was 20 down to 13, plus a lot of other books thrown in there. I, Nick, I would guess that we've probably mentioned the titles of at least 35 books in this podcast. Oh, <laughs> books that I'm very happy to mention publicly and others that I'm embarrassed that I even remembered. So it's good that we had that kind of mix. Yeah. So guys, let us know what some of your favorite travel books are. I mean, we have a list here. Now I've got some more to read. Nick has some more to read, but we're always looking for other options. So you can leave that at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash travel books, either travel books number one or travel books number two. Leave us a comment in those posts. Give us some good ideas for what we should be reading next. And Nick, I want to say thanks, man. We just, we just rocked out with two awesome podcasts on travel books. So I really appreciate you coming on and spending the time and telling us some of your favorite travel books. Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, travel and reading, it's two of my favorite things, so I'm always happy to talk about it. Yeah, well, there you guys go. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, let us know. Um, you can leave us a review on iTunes, of course. We love that, as well as you can, if you have suggestions for topics that you want us to talk about, if you have one that you want Nick to come back on, I can wrangle him in. If you give me a specific topic you want Nick to talk about, we can bring him back on for another show. You can email me, Trav, at Extra Pack of Peanuts. Of course, you can tweet us at Pack of Peanuts. And again, thank you guys for the support. We really appreciate the download numbers are through the roof. So thank you for that. Things are going really, really awesome with the five times a week. And I can't thank you enough. So thanks for joining us, everyone. Thanks for the support. We're now the number one rated travel podcast on iTunes. Woohoo! So I appreciate that. Awesome. Yeah. And until tomorrow, guys, happy free travels. 